and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional therapist with over 10 years of experience. And this is Trisha, and I did not think of anything to say today. (laughs) That's okay. It's been an off day. We're coming to you live from a hotel room right now. Yeah, um, I told myself to um, think of a fun word or something, and then now that we just pressed record, I realized I did not do it. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm flummoxed. That is a good word for right now. Okay. Yeah. So like Courtney said, we, uh, we're filming on, or not filming. We're um, recording on location in, um, Auburn, Oregon, Washington. I mean, Auburn, Washington. Yeah. And why, why are we here? We just attended, um, a day at the Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest. Yeah, it was our first time, and it was at Green River Community College. Um, I assume that they picked that place because of the Green River Killer. I mean, if they didn't, then... they what a coincidence. Right. I mean, there's nowhere else to choose, really, in the Northwest other than that. Right. So um, that was a really fun... Thing. You know, we hadn't gone to a true crime uh, anything before. We hadn't met any other podcasters, really, and um, it was a lot of fun. We did a martial, or not a martial arts, a, um, oh. Self-defense. Yes, oh my gosh, sorry. It's been a long day. A self-defense class, and we uh, did a presentation by the Seattle Police Department was there, and yeah. We watched uh, live podcasts, we which did. was pretty cool. Met a bunch of other true crime podcasters. It was really fun. Yeah. It was nice to hear how, you know, so many people started so, like we had, you know, and then got to where they are now. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun. Maybe next year we'll see if we can be a part of it and not just attending. Yeah. But we'll see. Okay. Well... Anyway, so if we sound like not quite as clear as normal, that is because we are in our makeshift studio in the uh, Comfort in Suites. (laughs) Yes, we are. So, Um, but we will still continue on with Richard Ramirez Part Three. Yes, ma'am. But before we do that, yes, I get to ask a nice question. Did you think of a question? Unlike me, I did think of a question. What do you got? So for October, we're going to stick with the Halloween theme. Um, at least I am for right now. And so my question for you, it's pretty easy, I think, since last one I chose was a doozy. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you were a kid, what Halloween candy were you most excited to get? Um, probably Reese's peanut butter cups. And it's probably still my favorite one to get. They were delicious. They still are delicious. I love to eat like the outer ring before I, am, you know, imbibe in the middle. Uh-huh. How about you? Um, you know, same. Really? Yeah, peanut butter cups were my thing. And they are definitely still, like, top two. Like, they're my favorite, like, chocolate-based candy, mm-hmm. I think. So, What's your favorite candy candy? Hard candy or chewy candy? I mean, I am a Sour Patch Kids girl mm. to the core, so. I think for Halloween, though, I really like the nerds that's what i seem to have gotten those little boxes of nerds but oh those were good anything sour i agree yeah yeah i am also one of those people that i love smarties i know that's controversial and those Mm. little plastic wrapped 
pill looking things, but I love them. I will still eat them. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> you can have mine, but you know, um, I'll take your candy corns. Sounds fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, good question, Courtney. Um, do you want to give a quick overview of the first uh, two parts of Richard Ramirez? Yes. So in the last two episodes, we learned that Richard had a difficult childhood full of abuse, concussions, drugs, and being exposed to violent sexual materials and actions. He then began um, a career as a professional thief, moved to L.A. to perfect his new job skills, used even more drugs, was Mm -hmm. obsessed with sex, Mm -hmm. and committed his first rapes and murder all before the age of 25. Right. He, at first, um, he killed that young gal and raped her, but that wasn't discovered until later. And then, like, what they had thought for a long time was his first murder was Jenny Van Cow. So we're going to pick up uh, right after he killed Jenny Van Cow. And at this time, he was getting more and more into his cocaine addiction. It was just kind of running his life. So to keep up with this drug habit, Richard was committing multiple burglaries a day. He would go in and out of people's houses, stealing whatever he could. And it was like his only driving thought, you know, that addiction was so powerful that anything, uh, he would do anything to satiate it. So he'd steal items to sell for money um, or he'd steal cash or, you know, whatever. His hygiene, which was already, like, really bad, became even worse. He just didn't care about anything except for getting high. So during the day, he would lock himself up in whatever shithole he was living in and watch TV, get high, and then fantasize about hurting people. And at some point, he realized that the cocaine was actually making him sloppy when he was committing these crimes, and it was also making him paranoid. And he figured it would ultimately get him caught. And that even Satan might not be able to protect him all the time. So he quit doing the cocaine. He just started to smoke pot and drink, and that was it. So in March of 85, Richard purchased a 22 revolver off the black market. He was now seeking his high from, you know, just thinking about killing people. And he spotted Maria Hernandez in her gold Camaro while driving on the freeway. So, Courtney, this really freaks me out. Like, he just was cruising along and sees this chick in a Camaro and then like, oh, I'm going to go for her. Um, I don't know. And he just decided that was then and there that that was who he wanted. No stalking, just like prior to this. So he followed her all the way to her condo that she shared with her friend Dale. And Maria parked in the garage, but she hadn't yet got the big garage door closed before Richard was able to follow her in. And she heard his hat fall off his head in the ground Um, As she whipped around at the noise, he was walking up toward her with his gun aimed directly at her face. Right then, the automatic garage door closed, and it was dark. He fired the gun right as Maria had lifted her hand with her keys in it. You know, she had the keys in her hand, and and she lifted to protect her face, and somehow that bullet hit her keys instead of her face. So assuming she was dead, though, Richard walked past her and into the condo. So Dale, her roommate, must have heard the gunshot because she hid behind the counter in the kitchen. And Richard knew that was that was where she was. So he waited for her to, like, peek over the counter. And when she did, he took his shot. And he shot her right in the forehead. And so Maria in the garage had gotten up from her spot at this point, and she exited. And she actually ran into Richard, who was leaving out the front door. He was super surprised to see her. He thought that she was dead. Um, she begged him not to kill her. 
for whatever reason, he didn't shoot her again. He just got into a stolen car and then drove away. So Courtney, I guess we've seen this with other serial killers. They just don't always do what they set out to do. But, you know, with Richard, he just doesn't always kill his victims. I wonder why he didn't shoot Maria again. Maybe it was just a surprise of her being alive. I don't know. What do you think? You know, well, psychopaths don't experience many emotions. You know, they can be surprised and caught off guard just like the rest of us. Um, And so with other killers we've talked about, you know, when the plan doesn't work out as expected, we have mostly seen them like increase their their rage and their violence in response to that. Um, But I think at, at this point in his sort of development as a serial killer, Richard was still kind of figuring out exactly what it, he wanted his plans to be. Um, so I think that he was just surprised when he saw Maria. And, you know, since he was in the process of running away from the scene, he just sort of continued on with what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, and how lucky was she that her, I mean, to me, that's like Providence or something right there. Her keys that she had put over her face ricocheted that bullet. Definitely a miracle of some kind. Right. So after Richard left the condo where he had just killed Dale, you'll see Okazaki. Sorry, I am so terrible with names. Um, Dale, you deserve better than that. But he spotted Veronica Yu on the freeway. He began to follow her, but unlike Maria, she actually realized that someone was following her and she was frantically looking for a policeman. Remember, so this was before cell phones, so she could not just call the police. She did pull over to observe the car that was following her, and Richard decided to try someone else, and he, like, pulled ahead. But for some reason, I don't know why, Veronica decided to now tail Richard. Now, this is the opposite of what we learned both from the Seattle PD today and our self-defense class. If you can get out of the situation, just leave. (laughs) Right. The (laughs) goal is to get home alive. Yeah. But whatever. Veronica decided to now tail Richard. And Richard Richard saw this and pulled over. He got out of his car, grabbed his gun, walked up to Veronica's car. Veronica then started to, you know, yell at him, what do you want? Why are you following me? And he gave some story about how he thought he knew her. And, you know, she was like, you're lying. You're full of shit. And then she told him she was going to tell the police and uh, memorized his license plate number. And so he kind of knew that's what she was doing, even though it was a stolen car. But he then decided he would, you know, take matters in his own hands and he would abduct her right there. So he reached in through her window and grabbed her, trying to pull her out. And, of course, she screamed. He realized he couldn't pull her through the window but saw that the passenger door was unlocked. So he got that door, uh, got to that door really quickly, um, quicker than she could think to lock it, and got in beside her. He then shot her in the ribs. She got out of the car at this um, to run away, and he shot her in the back where she fell to the asphalt Um, and after calling for help, you know, she did, someone did come and talk to her, but she couldn't really say anything. She did end up passing away. So Courtney, Richard just committed two murders in two different places and an attempted murder. I'm thinking because he didn't really get the chance at his first crime scene to like sexually gratify himself. Maybe he still felt the need to do more to get that release. I don't know though. Do you have any thoughts? You know, so one thing we know about Richard um, from looking at his history is that he can be incredibly impulsive, um, which may or may not be related to his, you know, repeated concussions and drug use. Um, But it was there, you know, for whatever reason. And so take that. And then we've got this Richard all pumped full of adrenaline, you know, from that first kill of the evening. 
Um, you know, because even serial killers are not immune to our autonomic responses. Their bodies still respond. Um, and so we also know that when a person is in sort of that elevated emotional state, even if it is like excitement and adrenaline, there's a lot of evidence that the part of the brain that manages logic, critical thinking, and good decision-making just is not able to function as well um, when in that heightened state. So I think that he just saw Veronica and impulsively decided to act on the urges that were being driven by that excitement that he was feeling. Okay. Makes sense. So after these two murders and the attempted murder, Richard was quiet for about 10 days as far as we know. He filled his time thinking about what to do next. He decided at this point to fully fully commit himself to his dark side. He fantasized about stealing enough money to buy a house where he could torture and kill victims. H.H. Holmes sounding right there. Um, Recorded on video and sell to the highest bidder. He was driving around looking for another person to follow home when he thought about a house he had burgled the year before. So um, he had... He had gone to this one house and he had already burglarized it the year prior and he was like, okay, maybe I'll go back there. They were a rich couple that lived there and that's probably why he thought that he'd be able to score some good money there. So the names of the people that owned the house in question were Vincent and Maxine Zazara. When he got there, he saw that Mr. Zazara was asleep on the couch and a look around the backyard windows showed Mrs. Zazara was asleep in bed. So Richard tried all the windows, but they were locked, except for one small one that he had to use like a prop to get up on to reach. He was able to get himself into the laundry room through that. Richard walked to the front of the house and shot Mr. Zazara in the head. But Mr. Zazara woke up, um, didn't die right away, and tried to fight the intruder off. But the, the damage was too great, and he did actually die. Mrs. Zazara awoke at the sound of the gun, but Richard was already in the room by the time she could clear her head. He bound her and beat her, then ransacked the room for things to steal. While Richard was, like, looting her house, she was able to get her hands unbound, and she grabbed the shotgun that was under the bed. She pointed it at Richard, and when he turned around, she pulled the trigger. But there was no bullets in the gun. It was not loaded because Vincent had removed the shells when the grandkids came over that weekend, and he forgot to put them back in. (sighs) Richard, who thought he was a goner, was now, like, super pissed off. He shot Maxine three times at point-blank range, beat her, then grabbed a kitchen knife and attempted to remove her heart from her chest. But he was unable to get through her rib cage. So instead, he decided to remove her eyeballs. He then put the eyes in a small box that he took with him. He then stabbed her all over her body and attempted to have sex with her, but he was just kind of too shaken by almost being shot by a shotgun that he could not accomplish, you know, the sexual act. But he left the house covered in blood, got on the freeway, went to his hotel, cleaned up, went to his contact um, to sell his stolen goods, got a sex worker to perform oral sex, but he still could not be aroused. So he just played with her feet instead. Then he called it a night. Okay, Courtney, so a lot of stuff happened in this one. He lost control for sure. He got very angry and went berserk. Also, how common are foot fetishes? I mean, we saw Jerry Bruto sort of obsessed with feet, but that was more so with shoes. Anything else you want to elaborate on? This was a lot. Um, and again, I think we are seeing more of how impulsive Richard was kind of in that moment of committing a crime. Um, and also kind of 
in describing his thinking during these murders, you know, he would talk about trying to think of what are the worst possible things he could do and how those things would please Satan so much. So when we think of these like random depraved acts that he was doing, I think looking at it from that perspective, he's like, what's the worst thing I could possibly do right now? And then he would do it. Um, And then, you know, as for foot fetishes, they're actually pretty common. Um, They account for more than 50% of all, like, body part-based fetishes. Hmm. Um, And kind of some research suggests that as many as one in seven people have had sexual fantasies involving feet. Really? Yes. I think, I mean, this is not a foot fetish at all, but I think that, like, baby's feet are so cute. Oh my gosh, they're adorable. playing with baby's feet but that that's as far as it goes I'm not into adult feet <laughs> <laughs> probably good yeah um that's there's anything wrong with yeah, that sounds no, like true. one in seven people yeah enjoy so. a good foot effing of some sort or something or find feet attractive yeah or yeah I mean you, there's definitely cute feet out there mm-hmm. and there's definitely ugly feet yes I used to work in the emergency room and I'll tell you because you you don't usually have your socks and shoes in there for whatever reason. I saw some ugly ass feet. I'm sorry. And that was the only time I've actually ever fainted being a medical assistant was assisting on a toenail removal. It was so gross. Sounds gross. Yeah, that's why I don't really do it anymore. I Anyhow, understand. Off subject. So, on May 14th, Richard struck again. <sighs> this is an absolutely despicable scene. They all are, but this one involved Bill and Lillian Doy. And he snuck into their residence, and he shot Bill in the mouth. It didn't kill him at first, but while he was dying, Richard went to his wife, who had had a stroke, um, and she was in bed, like basically bedridden. He beat her and raped her, and she couldn't even scream because of the stroke she had. He then ransacked the house, stole items, and left. Bill was still alive, and he was able to call the police, but the night stalker was already gone. No one could see Bill's wounds since he was shot in the mouth. They just all thought he had a heart attack. And he was still alive as he was transported to the hospital, but died shortly upon arrival. It wasn't until postmortem that they realized what had happened. So they weren't treating him the right way when he got there because they thought that it was a heart attack that he had had not being shot. Lillian was able to give you know, a short description of a man in black with bad teeth to the police, but it was really tough for her to do so because of the stroke that she had had and then the trauma she just endured. So the next two victims were Mabel, um, who went by Ma, Bell, and Florence, um, who went by Nettie, Lang. And as we've seen, no one is off limits to this asshole. These two sisters were in their 80s and they lived together. And Nettie was an invalid. So Ramirez was able to just open the front door of this residence and found both of the women sleeping in bed. He went to the kitchen to find a knife, but couldn't find one suitable. But he did, for whatever reason, find a hammer. He walked into Nettie's room and pounded her head several times with the hammer. He then bound her hands with the cord from a wall clock and stepped on the clock, which left a bloody shoe print. Um, He then went into Ma's room and struck her in the head. She woke up, demanded to know what he wanted, He screamed at her that he wanted money, to which she screamed back that she didn't have any money. He then hit her again with such force that brain matter, like, came out of her skull, you know. And then he bound her with duct tape, ransacked her room for valuables, went back to Nettie's room, raped her. Before he left, he used red lipstick to sketch a pentagram into the white wall um, and onto Ma's thigh. 
So he's, you know, leaving his calling card, I suppose. I'm not sure. The pentagram. The next night on May 30th, 1985, Richard broke into Carol Kyle's house. She lived there with her 11-year-old son. Richard broke in while both of them were sleeping, went into Carol's room first. He woke up Carol at gunpoint, then made her lead him to her son's room. Richard made her lay on the floor as he, you know, barged into the room. Carol got up and threw herself between Richard and her son, telling him, just leave him alone, take whatever he wanted, you know, do what he wanted with her, just leave her son alone. Um, He screamed at them not to look at him, which, Courtney, is something he's done on many of these occasions. Even if I don't say it, he screams at people not to look at him. And then he cuffed the mother and son together on the bed. He then put them into a hall closet and shut the door. Then he decided to pull them out of the closet and laid them down on the bed. Now, he did this because he was super paranoid that maybe there was a shotgun in there. <laughs> he did not want to, uh, you know, get caught unawares again. So he was like, never mind, come out of the closet. I want to be able to watch you the whole time. So Richard ransacked the house looking for valuables and getting more and more frustrated as there wasn't anything to take. So he took her only piece of jewelry. It was her diamond wedding ring. Um, her husband had been killed in a plane crash six years older earlier, and uh, that was all she had. Richard orally raped her, and then he vaginally raped her. He then sodomized her several times as he was just not able to find satisfaction. And this poor woman had to endure all of this sadistic torture. He then got something to drink, waited a while before he clothed Carol in a nightgown, brought her son out of the closet, locked them back up together with the handcuffs, left the key on the counter so that someone could help her get out of them, and then uh, asked directions to the freeway and left. So, you know, Courtney, like like we've seen, he doesn't always kill. Um, He doesn't even really seem to have a victim type. He doesn't always kill them, and he was linked to multiple child abductions where he would let them go. I mean, he would, you know, molest them first. But, I mean, do you have any thoughts you know, we haven't talked about a diagnosis for a while. I'm assuming you're thinking he's a psychopath with sex, uh, sadistic tendencies, but that's just me. Yeah, so, you know, criminologists often divide, you know, killers or criminals into subsets, um, and one of which is being considered either organized or disorganized. Um, and so an organized killer is generally more deliberate, more focused, more planful, in their kills, while a disorganized killer um, is more like impulsive and frantic and emotional. Um, and so with Richard, I think we sort of have one of the more rare cases where he is both organized and disorganized. You know, he does have some general routine and plan. You know, he breaks into a home through the window. If there's an adult male, he kills them. He restrains and rapes the female victims and then robs them. Um, and then, you know, leaps. Um, so, however, you know, the method with which he does these tasks is not always the same, right? Sometimes it's using an object there. Sometimes he uses a gun. Sometimes he ties them up with duct tape he's brought with. Sometimes it's with stuff he found there. Um, so, in that moment, it's more all about, like, that what is close by that I can use, Um You know, he's very clearly impacted by frustration when things don't go well, and so that can sort of throw him off track and lead him to doing, you know, things that were not planned. Um, And, you know, the severity of his violence is not always the same, and the end result is not always the same. Like you said, like, he doesn't always kill the victims. Mm -hmm. Um, Some victims are just killed, and it's quick, and some victims are tortured, Um, unfortunately, like Carol in this situation. Mm -hmm. 
And so, um, you know, it's as though he kind of goes out at night with a plan to do something terrible. But then what he chooses to do is kind of dependent on kind of his impulse and, and the opportunity of what presents itself. Um, you know, and as speaking to to diagnoses, like, yes, I would definitely agree at this time. Um, Richard is a sadistic psychopath. Anything else in that diagnosis or does that cover it? I think that like, pretty much covers pretty it. big, like, broad <laughs> for him. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's, I mean, we could throw in, like, addict and... Oh, yeah, and for sure. You know, things like that, but okay. that's where we're at. Yeah. The worst kind of psychopath, the sadistic psychopath. Yes. I mean, I think, I don't know. Um, in early June of that year, Richard attempted but did not succeed into breaking uh, in breaking into a house of a police officer. He fled the scene when he realized the futility of the task, but not before accidentally alerting the owner's of his presence. So um, they went out and investigated, like they heard something, so they went outside, and he had left another shoe print outside of the window that he had tried to pry open. And that shoe print had matched the one left at Ma Bell's and Nettie's house. So now we have a partial handprint um, from that first, well, the second Jenny Binkow, and then two shoe prints as physical evidence. There were two homicide detectives working these cases. Um, that we're starting to put together that this is one person doing these murders and also, you know, possibly kidnapping these children um, that were starting to come up. And after this botched attempt, Ramirez tried to kidnap a girl, but she screamed and the police were notified and she got away. This was like outside. Richard, angry about all of this, got into his car. So basically two botched attempts in one night. Got into his car sped off where he was pulled over for speeding. And Officer Stravos, Stravros um, asked Richard to get out of the car after Richard could not produce license or registration for the stolen car he was driving. And, you know, the officer asked for his name because he was going to run it through the computer. So Richard gave him some phony name, and the officer went back to the police vehicle to, you know, input the information. And when he went back to the police um, vehicle, the radio was very loud, and it was clear, and it said that an abduction attempt had just occurred, and the man was in a car just like the one Richard was driving um, with the same physical description as Richard. So Richard heard this on the radio. He knew it was him that they were looking for. So he knew he was kind of done for if he didn't get out of there. So he drew a pentagram on the hood of the ple- of the car he had stolen, and then he ran off. So, you know, again, another time the killer was nearly caught by the police. <laughs> um, I mean, this one, he wasn't let go. He just evaded them. But still, frustrating. Um, on June 27, 1985, a 32-year-old school teacher by the name of Patty Elaine Higgins was the next victim. She was strangled, sodomized, and her throat was cut. On July 2nd, Richard, in his stolen vehicle of the day, drove to Arcadia and chose at random the house of Mary Louise Cannon, who was a widowed grandmother of 75 years of age. She, too, was sleeping when Richard broke into her home, beat her with a lamp until she was unconscious, then stabbed her to death with a knife from her kitchen. July 5th, 1985, Richard broke into the home of 16-year-old Whitney Bennett. He bludgeoned her with a tire tire iron and then attempted to strangle her with a phone wire. But while he was doing this, the phone wire sparked electricity and it, you know, popped out at Richard. And then Whitney started to breathe again. So Richard, thinking that this might have been divine intervention, like from Jesus, he freaked out and fled. Whitney survived, 
uh, excuse me, Whitney survived, but she had to have 478 stitches for the damage she caused to her head. And, you know, she was sleeping when all of this happened. And when she woke in the morning, um, she just said that she just felt terrible. She had a bad headache. She did not remember what happened. Um, her parents didn't even hear what happened. So it was like when she woke up screaming, her parents came in there and just saw their daughter, like, you know, completely messed up. So I don't know how long she slept with those injuries, but two days later, Ramirez burgled and beat to death 60 year old Lucille Nelson while she was in her home. She knew about the Night Stalker, you know, it was getting press. It was on the news. There was some, you know, sketches out there and everything, but she was determined not to live in fear. So she and Ramirez argued and fought, but eventually he did overcome her and, you know, he got her to the ground and he beat her. In fact, he stomped on her face until she died and he left the telltale Avia shoe print on her face when doing this. So after this murder, he kept going that night and, you know, hit the home of Sophie Dickman, who was 63. He assaulted Sophie, handcuffed her, robbed her and left. So there's several more victims. I'm going to just kind of touch on them because, you know, it's a lot. Um, but Leela, Leela and Max Kidding um, were the next victims. Ramirez broke in and killed them with the machete he had purchased. And I'm not going to get these names right. Um, Shara Ong and some kid Kavanaugh. That's not right. I'm sorry. But um, you can always look these people up. He shot and first um, raped the latter, he then forced the eight-year-old son to show them the family valuables before he left. Chris and Virginia Peterson, he shot them both. Those two both survived, thankfully, that attack. Sakina and Elias Aboweth, um, in that one, he shot Elias and beat Sakina and raped her. This was done in front of their eight-year-old son. Peter, Peter and Barbara Pan, um, with them, he shot Peter in the head and beat and sexually assaulted Barbara then shot her in the head. He drew a pentagram at the crime scene and a shoe print was again left behind um, when he left. Bill Carnes and his fiance Inez Erickson were, you know, the, the last ones. He shot Bill in the head. He beat and raped Inez. Bill survived the three shots to the head, um, luckily. So anyways, Courtney, I'm going to like stop there at today because that is the end of the murder spree as far as we know. Um, that's a lot to take in. I know that was a lot on this episode was just the murders and going over them. And it was really depressing and it was really sad. and It was really hard to hear and do. And I'm sorry about all the names that I got wrong, but be that as it may, is there anything you want to um, add? I think one of the things that was kind of like unique in the situation of Richard Ramirez was just how much fear the public had mm -hmm. um, about him. You know, and the fact that his victim type, crime type, weapon, and so many other things seem to have no pattern, at least none that was released to the public. You know, it's exactly what made Richard, you know, or that Night Stalker in particular, so terrifying to the community. You know, they could never predict where or when or who might be next because it could be anyone at any time in any part of the city or neighboring cities, for that matter. It's true. You know, you can usually find some sort of MO, um, victim profile, whatever, with most of the serial killers, at least the ones we've looked at, you know, but he's all over the place. It's no one's off limits. Right, exactly. You know, there had been 
of course, the the Bundys and the um, Ridgeways mm-hmm. and things like that. So it could be, okay, co-ed women, mm-hmm. um, women sex workers, mm-hmm. you know, very specific groups of people. Um, right. And so if you weren't part of that specific group of people, you could still kind of walk around feeling safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1985, you know, in and around L.A., nobody felt safe. Well, in fact, on this one, it's almost the reverse, right? The sex workers were probably safer than the people that were, you know, in bed and ho- at home at 12 a.m. It's true. Richard liked his sex workers. And, he, you know, a lot of times sex workers worked late nights, so they weren't at, in their home. You know, that's true. At the time that Richard was prowling. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, anyhow, um, we're going to get into, you know, the best part, his capture next episode. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the two, the two detectives that really were key in bringing this all together. Um, you know, a lot of people thought this was more than one perpetrator that was doing all of these things. They didn't think that it was also the same person who was um, kidnapping, kidnapping and molesting all these children, then dropping them back off at other places. But these two were able to really figure out that it was one person and were, I mean, kind of ultimately responsible with getting him caught, I feel, because they had put the information out there. Definitely. To the public, and the public is what rocked this case in the end. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so um, I guess we'll sign off from On Location in Green River. I think probably first we should do some social media. It's my turn of the social media. I was trying to get out of it. Okay. (laughs) All right. Here we go. Social media. So um, please give us a, you know, email shout out if you feel like it. Suggestions, uh, constructive criticism, compliments, all that good stuff at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. Instagram is at addictedtompodcast. Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube is at Addicted to Murder Podcast. And I got it all. You got it all. Good I job. Got it all. And um, everyone that we met at the Pacific Northwest Crime Fest, just want, if you listen to us, we gave you our cards. We're, you know, <laughs> we're hoping you give us a listen. Um, thank you for our, all of the information you gave us today. It was really helpful. We learned a lot. And yeah. Yeah. And so before our, our final, final send off, too, I want to just share one amazing phrase that we learned during our self-defense class that I think every person should know. It's a good one. It is. So if someone tries to attack you Mm -hmm. and you are unsafe somewhere, the goal is always to go nuts and then go home. Right. Meaning kick them in the nuts and then get the hell out of there. Peace. Yes. And right. go crazy on them, too. So there's multiple meanings to nuts. Yeah, yeah true. Mm-hmm. But yes. <laughs> go nuts and go home. Or also, we'll see you next Tuesday. All right. Be safe. Bye. Bye.